sound a little bit familiar. We're not studying the book of Judges, but that expression, everyone to do what's right for them, is, uh, is, some, is the kind of the key interpretive passage or, or expression in the book of Judges where we have a whole series of cycles of Israel, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. God removes his protection. God removes his blessing. He allows them to fall into slavery at the hands of their enemies. They suffer. They finally repent and call out and ask for God's mercy. He forgives them and he restores them. And pretty soon they're back to it again. And around and around and around it goes. When will people learn? When will we learn? Well, we have seen in, our, in the context of Leviticus that uh, the great theme of this book is that God has called his people, Israel, at that time to be holy as he himself is holy. And we talked last week especially about what that means. To be holy is to be other, to be set apart, to be different. And in God's case, and in the holiness that he calls his people to, it also implies that there's a purity involved, a righteousness in that. And so that's kind of our, our background context. As we looked last time at uh, God's central command to his people Israel, be holy as I am holy, and, he, and then he backed that up again and again with, I am Yahweh, your God, who sanctified you. So he, he, he reminded them of who he is, that he is unique from all the other fake gods that they had been introduced to in Egypt and, and that they were constantly exposed to by the other nations around them, and reminded them that he sanctified them. He called them out for himself. He had delivered them from slavery, from Egypt. And so he had a call, he had a right, he had a claim to their worship. And so he called them to live holy lives. Now, that wasn't laying a burden upon them. That wasn't saying, now this is how I want you to be religious. This is how I want you to do things to try to make me happy and good luck with that. That was kind of the approach of pretty much all the other religions and is to this day. Whereas God said, I want you to live in a way that reflects my holiness. I am good. I am faithful. I am trustworthy. I am loving. I do what is good for others. I want you to live that way. When people look at you and say, who is your God? And you say, Yahweh. I want them to see in your lives and in your, in your community something that reflects my goodness, my love, my grace, my faithfulness, my trustworthiness, all of these things. And so the law that God gave to Moses was to help them achieve that. It was to guide them as to how to live as a community and as individual people who reflected God's character. And we're still called to that today. We saw that, that we are called in similar ways uh, to be holy as the Father is holy, Matthew 5, verse 48. We're reminded that, that we are his. We are bought with a price because he, he has saved us. He has sanctified us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 19. And so God has a claim on us, and we must learn to live in a manner that reflects his unique character and the great price that he paid to save and to sanctify us. So we want to give ourselves to that. Well, now as we return to the text in Leviticus chapter 19, we will continue to see the there and them context first. We'll look at how God was dealing with his people Israel at that time through the delivery of this covenant, the law, all the details that he is explaining that he is now expounding upon um, for them because he gave them back in Exodus the framework with the Ten Commandments and then there's the Book of the Covenant which we have studied and, and now he is uh, continuing to fill this out to demonstrate how the law, the covenant meets the road in their lives, so to speak. And so these are more and more details. But you'll see that many of the same Guiding principles, many of the same most basic values that God has given to them already, he repeats, he reiterates, because they are central, they are so, so very important, they're foundational. So we shall see that again uh, today as we, um, we looked a little bit at that, uh, a few different verses in, verse, in chapters 19 and 20 last, last time, as we saw that, be holy as I am holy, central command. Now we're going to see how God begins to uh, once again say, well, this is what that looks like. He doesn't, he doesn't leave the people wondering, you know, what do we have to do to please this holy God? He's, he's explicit about it. You know, even, even today, we, you know, in the corporate world, the, the expression is used that clear is kind, right? 
clear instruction. This is my expectation. That's actually kind. So that people know exactly how they can do what's expected of them. And so God is kind in this way. He was very explicit to his people as to how he wanted to live. Wanted them to live. So uh, we're going to see here... um, once again, I want to remind you of the, of the background of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. And I have not put all the text on the screen. I have many texts, so I'm going to trust you to let your fingers do the walking today. All right? Uh, there would be many, many slides, and so I'm going to encourage you to look things up. If you've got Bible in hand, great. If you don't and you want one, we usually have some loaner copies available back there. And if you put your hand up, I'm sure somebody will jump and help you out with that. Even on your phone, if you look up. Uh, BibleGateway.com. You can find many, many great free translations of the Bible there. I'm preaching out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. You can easily pull that up and look at the reference that we're at here. Okay? So, um, and, and friends, family, look around, help anybody who looks like they're struggling. All right? Help. Be, there's no need to be shy about getting help. Okay? All right, so we're in Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, where God said, I am Yahweh, again, Capital letters for Lord, all caps. That's representing his name, personal name. Yahweh, distinguishing himself from any of the other gods to which they have been introduced. I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So there's that central command, and we just see it continue to be brought back to them to stress to the people, this is how I want you to live. So now we're in Leviticus chapter 19, and we looked at some of these verses last time as we were introduced to the passage as a whole. We'll focus a little bit more on verses 3 through 8 now, today. But I'll read the passage, I'll start with verse 1, and let's just read through it once so that we have the whole thing in context. Leviticus 19, 1 through 8, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, or make yourselves any gods of cast metal, I am Yahweh, your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. And it shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after it. Anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, when you read that context, you think this, your initial reaction may be something like what mine was. This is an odd little conglomeration of instructions. Why did he choose these things together in this sequence in this context? Well, when God delivers a message, he doesn't do it haphazardly. It's not randomly. It's not without purpose. So we have to, I think, conclude that these were meant to be first things. This was the you know, first things, first prioritization. These are the things. This is where you begin to demonstrate that you are my people. And maybe we would have chosen different things, but hear what God says. His first order here is in verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You see, as I mentioned before, we we are living in a society that seems to be systematically attacking the family structure and systematically attacking the idea that parents are to be honored, that they are to be respected and obeyed. Now, is that by accident that our society chooses to target the family? I think not. I think that there is an enemy of God behind all of this that is motivating a society to rebel against God in the ways that are most meaningful to God. God established at the very beginning, he ordained the structure of a family 
And so Satan is immediately trying to attack that structure. He knows that God has ordained that this is how people can live together well and reflect his goodness, help one another. And so this is one of the first things Satan wants to destroy. And so as God has chosen the people of Israel this time in history to be his primary representatives in the world, he immediately goes to the reinforcement of the family and understanding the roles within the family. It's interesting, the word that you have, depending on which translation you're looking at, I have revere, you might have honor, um, you might even have fear. Well, the Hebrew word, yare, actually does literally mean fear. As in, shake in your boots. Be afraid. Now, a lot, of, a lot of translators have chosen revere because they figure, well, God doesn't really want children to be terrified of their parents. That's kind of not you know, the idea. And so I think revere is a, is a good word, and it's used with, you know, as a translation of this word in other places. So it makes sense. But it might be a bit of an adjustment to our attitude and to our thinking in general to consider that God would choose such a weighty word to describe how people should relate to their parents. It is so far from what our society is programming you to do today. This is fear, revere, hold in the highest regard with an expectation that you had better obey your parents. This is the word that God has chosen. Now this, these instructions that we see here in this context will see are completely based upon and, and supporting the Ten Commandments, the basic framework that God gave the people of Israel back in, in Exodus. And so this reflects uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And uh, I'll just read it for you. I'll have it done by the time you look there. But you can scratch it down if you want to. Um, you're taking your own notes today, sorry. Um, Exodus 20, verse 12, he says, Honor your father and mother, same word there, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so there he even accompanies that command with, with a positive, you know, I will bless you if you honor your father and mother. And if you want to experience blessing, if, you, you know, if that is your hope, to, to live long in the land, well then this is what you must do. You must honor your father and mother. It's Exodus 20, verse 12. We'll look at how that comes back to us again in the New Testament later, but we're just looking at, the, at this context. Uh, the next thing that he highlights here is the keep my Sabbaths command. That's the second part of verse 3. Keep my Sabbaths. Now, Sabbath is literally, you know, the seventh day, and that was the instruction that God gave to his people Israel, the seventh day. So what we know as Saturday, it actually started Friday evening and went to Saturday evening. And so... Um, that, is, that was the time that God designated that they were to not work, that they were to spend time with their family, that they were to gather together in their local assemblies, whether it be synagogues eventually that were made uh, possible. Uh, here originally it was just at the tabernacle uh, where people would take this time to worship, to rest, and to invest in their family relationships. This was God's plan for his people. And a very gracious plan, isn't it? I mean, if God was, was a meanie God, if he was a capricious God who just wanted people to always jump through hoops and always do things to make him happy and things like that, why wouldn't he just go ahead and drive them seven days a week? But he actually is very firm in saying, you need to take a day to rest. You need to take a day to commune with me and with one another. It's very gracious. So this is a reminder of Yahweh's uh, unique Identity and claim on their worship that follows that, where he says, as soon as he gives that command, he says, I am Yahweh your God. So he is putting weight behind this command to keep the Sabbaths. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, that that's based on in the, in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it separate, to keep it different. Holy means. So is it different? Thirdly, we see that they are to worship no other gods or objects. That's my summary statement. Worship no other gods or objects. Verse 4, he says, Do not turn to idols 
or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. And again, he puts the weight of his identity and his claim on their worship. Behind it, I am Yahweh, your God. The idols, the word here, really means nothings. This is the, God, this is the, the word that God uses for, for, the, for the images that, <coughs> excuse me, that people might create, that they would set up and bow down to, that they would give food gifts to, that they would burn sacrifices to. And, and, and the very name that he gives them, he's mocking the, this, this activity and saying, there's nothings. So uh, you, you need to not turn to these nothings. I mean, the answer is kind of in the, in the statement right there. Why would you turn to these idols? I don't know, because they're nothings. They're worthless. But likewise, he didn't want people to make any images, even that might represent him. Because God is so holy, God is so other, he is not to be made to, he's not to be represented by one of his creatures. And, the, and all the idols, all the things that were made, all represented a, cre- a creature. Whether it be some type of human form, some type of animal form, or some sort of combination of the two. These were all God's creatures. And to try to create an image to represent him that is like one of his creatures is demeaning. And so he says there would be no statues at all in their worship. And it's funny, it's a little bit ironic as well that he, that he uses this language. Um, to, idols... Uh, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods. Do you get the kind of tongue-in-cheek in that statement there? What kind of a god is it that you can make for yourself? If it's something that you can fashion with your own hands, if it's something that you can just, just create it with your own imagination, even, even the description of a, of a deity, if it's just something that you can cook up in your mind, or if it's something that you can carve, or that you can melt you know, metal and, and do a cast and do that sort of thing, if you can make it, is it really a god? Is it really anything that can do anything for you when its very existence relies upon your creativity and your action? Do you see how silly and backwards that is? And so it's, it's embedded in the language right there. I think, it's, I think it's kind of funny. I think as God inspired Moses to write this, he, he probably, you know, I recognize it's anthropomorphism, but I, I feel like God was probably chuckling just a little bit when he, when he told Moses to write that. And I, Moses probably got the joke, too. He probably was like, oh, this is good. That's funny. All right. So this command, however, is very serious. And it goes back to Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6, and verse 23. I do want to read those verses. So it's Exodus chapter 20, beginning verse 3, where he says originally, You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And verse 23, again, you shall, make, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Even the most precious metals are not worthy and there should be no image created to represent God or to stand alongside of God. Right, so he's quite clear about that. And there again, it's, it's kind of, if you just think about it, that you would carve an image, that you would make a likeness, and then bow down to serve it, the thing that you made. I mean, just, it, you know, it's hard for us to relate, I suppose, because probably none of us have made an idol before. Right? But imagine cooking a great meal, you know, uh, chopping all kinds of things up, slicing, dicing, making a great casserole, setting it out on the table and going, oh, great casserole. Will you please bless me this evening and help my family? It's just as silly. And yet people worship other things still today. It's just as silly. Well, and then fourthly, in this first bit of this, of this passage, he says, in my summary, uh, approach me on my terms. That's what we see in verses 5 through 8. 
God instructs his people to approach him on his terms. Now he goes back to, uh, this is a, Leviticus is earlier in this, in this book, Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 18. So I want to read that passage and then I'll make the, the comment. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 18, we're introduced, well, for the second time, really, the peace offering. It was in chapter 3 where he first in, introduces it, and in verse 7, he gives more detailed instruction about how it's to be carried out, uh, the rules and regulations, procedures, etc. So Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 18, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. Now remember, the, the peace offering, is, and especially when it's brought as a thanksgiving offering, is, is a voluntary offering, and it's the one among, of, among those whole series of, of offerings that is eaten by the, by the, by the person who brings it. A portion is shared with the priest who carries out the sacrificial procedures, and and then family uh, are invited to come. Family friends can come and join in this, and so it's kind of a fellowship meal, and so it's fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. Right, so it's so it's great that God brings this up where He's stressing once again the importance of the structure of the family and of the and the relationship, the fellowship that people have with Him as the one true God, and so. It makes there's a logic to this that he brings up now the peace offering. Verse thirteen with with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall bring his offering with loaves of, of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord, and it shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings, and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. And he shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers a sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. So in other words, retroactively, what began as a perfectly good offering becomes rejected and just adds to the guilt of the person if they eat it on the third day. Now, why would God have such a strange rule? Once again, is he just making hoops for people to jump through because it pleases him to see people jump through hoops? <laughs> God knew they didn't have refrigeration. God knew before... There were any scientists around who, with microscopes, the bacteria was going to multiply. On the third day, the meat was going to begin to be unsafe for them to eat. So lovingly, as with all his commands, lovingly, he says, don't do this. And it's, it's, it's no different than a parent telling a child, don't just run out into the street. It's for their good. So God makes it very clear that he expects them to follow his procedures to approach him on his terms, even when it comes down to how they carry out a sacrifice and when they eat its meat. Okay. So Jehovah's first concerns for Israel's holiness, that they honor the father and mother, and he's protecting the family structure, that they keep his Sabbaths, that they have the rest that they need, and that they prioritize their relationship with God and with each other, that they worship no other fake gods that they don't go after these worthless things because how is that going to help them anyway? Again, a very loving command. He knows that he's the only one who can do any good for anyone, so he forbids them from following after the things that cannot. And fourthly, he's making clear, and he's really laying the groundwork for the future for the Messiah by making it clear that you must approach him on his terms according to what he has provided for instruction to approach him because he's holy God and we are sinful people. Uh, something's changed with the mics and it's starting to ring up here. I'm afraid it'll loop if I get too loud. Maybe that's a good thing that I, it's an inhibitor. Well, so we go on to, uh, let's have a look at the New Testament. Jehovah's reminders of first concerns in the New Testament. And we'll, we'll trace the same things here. So first of all, we see that the 
the reminder or the reaffirmation of this priority of God that we honor our parents. Jesus elevated this Old Testament command above what had become all the religious traditions of the time. So we need to look at Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 6. of the elders. So they're referring to the to the, uh, the Pharisees and scribes that had established many traditions uh, around and supporting and, and built upon the law but they just some of these things start innocently enough I think and we see it happen in, in churches with believers today. Sometimes somebody begins by talking about what is a good way to apply one of God's laws or rules or instructions and they look at their current circumstances and say well this principle should be applied like this and so really you shouldn't do x y or z but then people just start teaching don't do x y or z and they kind of forget about what the principle was that it was supposed to support and now it's just become a new law and it's put on the same level as god's law and so now it's just a tradition and that's what we refer to as being legalistic right it's just kind of man-made rules I grew up in an environment that had a few of those things. You know, we, it was treated, sadly. There's nothing wrong with a you know, church family suggesting to each other, you know, because of God's principle, because of this clear instruction here, look at how this might affect your life and, and make a suggestion. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't do this, or maybe you should consider this. Okay? That's perfectly legitimate within the family of God to do that. But what is illegitimate is to say, you know, well, we don't do this. And it's not really in scripture, but it's held on the same level as though it's God's rules, God's instructions. And if you don't follow this list of details, if you don't cut your hair this way, or if you don't make sure your hemline is this length, or if you don't use this particular translation of the Bible, or if you, et cetera, et cetera, then you're just clearly not right with God. Well, that is elevating man's traditions on the level of God, and it is actually apostasy to do that. It's very dangerous. And Jesus is calling that out because that's become, that's what the Pharisees have done. And so he challenges them here. Matthew 15, the Pharisees and scribes came to him. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They had set up a whole system of how they would wash before each meal. Not that washing hands is bad, right? It's that they've elevated this particular tradition, these doing things, to the level of God's word. And he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He's flipping it right back on them. They're elevating the tradition of the elders and judging a man for it. And he's saying, "Um, why are you ignoring what God has clearly instructed in preference for your traditions? For God commanded, he said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father, you say. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This is, the, this is what was referred to as korban. This was a thing that the, the Pharisees had developed this idea that you can do something that is more spiritual than, than providing for your, your elderly parents. Okay? It was the expectation, it was the understanding that you care for your parents as they age. So when they're no longer able to be the, pro, the primary providers of the family, their, their health, their strength is failing. The next generation is expected to care for them and to care for them well until the day they die and to bury them in honor. These Pharisees were saying, oh, but if you give to God all of the stuff that you would have used to care for your parents, if you say to your parents, you know, I, I would take care of you in your retirement, but instead I'm going, to, I'm going to give it all to the temple. I'm going to give it to God instead. 
the Pharisees have taught the people that that's a better thing. You're honoring God above your parents, and so, and so you know, you can tell your parents, you know, sorry too bad for you, hope you manage. I'm giving all of that money to God. I'm giving it to the church, as it would be today. Jesus is absolutely calling this out and saying, you are disobeying God's law. You are expected to care for your parents. It is not more spiritual to give the money to the place of worship than to care for your parents. You have told people this wrongly, that they can do this and that God will be pleased. You can see that Jesus is clearly upholding this as one of God's timeless values, the honoring of the parents. Now, we're talking about adult children here, aren't we? So the command is not just when you are little, obey your parents. The command is your parents are always your parents all your life, all their life. You are to honor them. You may not obey them in the same way as when you're a child under their absolute authority, but you still honor them. So it's something we strive to do. And it's sure it's difficult. When you become your own family and you, you've got your own structure, there will be difference of opinions of things about how oh, this should be done or that done, and you have to establish your own family unit. That's a different thing. You don't have to just obey every, every wish and every directive that the parents give to you as an adult. But honor them, you must. And care for them in their old age, you must. It is in the New Testament. Jesus has affirmed it. Uh, there are more instructions in regard to the family unit, God's structure of the family, and how children are to obey when they're young, when they're parents, how husbands and wives are to honor one another. And so you should write down, if you want to look it up and do a little more time, look at Ephesians chapter six, or Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. God has good instructions in those passages that that tell us how we should all relate to one another in the way that he desires for us, even in this New Testament era. That can be, that's a whole other study. But you can see that it is still very high value, very important to God, that he has ordained the family and given roles to the members of the family, and we are to honor him by honoring each other according to his plan. Secondly, we are to keep gathering for worship and fellowship, just as as God told the people of Israel, keep my Sabbaths. We today, as, as God's people in the church, in the church era, are to keep gathering for worship and fellowship. We are to still take a day where we step aside from the regular routine of work, where we get some rest, where we take time to worship God, where we fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and with our family. These things are there. So if, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. The author of Hebrews, challenging believers, uh, been somewhat dispersed. They are both uh, Jewish and Gentile believers, I believe, in this context. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So this is your faith, right? Hold fast your faith in Christ. For he who promised is faithful. We don't need to waver because he won't. And he goes on to say, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And we've talked about this already. This is part of the joy of being part of a church family. While it's not a requirement, you can be a Christian without being a member of a church, signing your name on, a, in a, you know, on the lines of a book. But this is part of the privilege, is that you can be part of this, this family where we can stir one another up, where we can egg each other on, where we can exhort and encourage one another to love and good works. And so the charge is here, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Okay? Don't fall off with the priority of going to church. The church, of course, is just a, it's not a word that exists in the Bible, but it's a translation from the word that's there that's the assembly. Okay? And so the church family is meant to assemble. That means you're supposed to be in each other's presence which means you have to get here, right? be in each other's presence. And so this is what we're called to do. We are not to neglect it. We're supposed to meet together as the habit of some is, he says. So that's kind of like, yes, there are some people who are violating this. 
but we're to be encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And can't we feel the weight of that? All the more as the day is drawing near, we can feel the walls caving in, you know, closing in. We can see a world that is determined to rebel against God. We see things happening that are historical, that are biblical, that tell us that the end times are drawing near. We don't, I'm not here to predict days and months and years or anything like that, but you can see that the, draw, the day is drawing near. This is exactly what he's talking about, that, that our assembly together as believers should be more and more important as the challenges grow greater. So that is relevant for us today in the New Testament era, this same value that God put forward for his people, Israel, that we should continue to gather together. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21, says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What a wonderful thing to be part of the organic building, the organic thing that is the church. Thirdly, just as God told the Israelites, worship no other gods or objects. Worship me alone. We see this in the New Testament. We are to worship no other gods or objects. Uh, Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, is a very clear case in point. In fact, here we have uh, Jesus quoting this Old Testament passage from, from Exodus. Again, this is during the time of temptation when Satan was trying to uh, uh, compromise Jesus in his time of weakness after his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. The devil took him up to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Jesus is feeling the fact that he is all God, but he's all man. He's laid aside some of his power and glory when he came to experience humanity alongside of us. And so in his flesh, he is feeling all of the hunger and the weakness of his fasting. And that makes all of us a bit vulnerable, doesn't it? And Satan's trying to take advantage of this. So he takes him up to this, to this viewpoint and shows them all the kings, kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you. you know, I, I won't fight you anymore. It's all yours. If you just fall down and worship me. You know, all you have to do is declare your loyalty to me. And I'll put you in charge of it all. And you know, everything will be great. You don't have to go through all of this stuff that you're planning on going through. It doesn't have to be that hard. Have you ever been challenged in that way? Tempted in that way? Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, which means adversary, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And we see that same uh, account in other books, in Luke, for instance. But let's look at Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Here again we see Jesus prioritizing this relationship with God above all else. Verse 19, Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the challenge for us today to not worship idols of any sort. Idols that may not be carved images, they may not be cast metal, but they might be other things that we treasure in our heart. It might be the bigger paycheck. It might be the next level you know, of progress in the workplace. A little more power, a little more reward. It might be the next, you know, the nicer car or the next, whatever it might be. Okay? And again, I'm not shaming for people having any of these nice things or progressing at work. God might bless you in that way and, and if you are faithful to him and responsible in the way that you treat these things, if you hold them as gifts from God with an open hand and you do not love them, if you do not pursue them above God, if God chooses to pour out wealth and opportunity on you, well, praise God, be faithful, use it for his glory. 
But the question here is, what do you treasure? What do you love? Will you be just as happy being demoted if that's what it takes to be faithful to God? If it's tell the truth, tell the biblical truth, share the gospel, or be promoted, which will you choose? If it's accept emotion or shut up and stop talking about these things and you can stay in your position. Are you prepared to take the lesser role? Are you prepared to be stood down even? If that's what it means to honor God. So what do you really love? Where's the higher value? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is worship. Finally, we see that God continues in the New Testament to say that we must worship him on his terms. It's not okay for people to just choose their own way. You know, there's a popular illustration that's used um, by Buddhists that uh, is supposed to describe um, spiritual reality. There are actually a couple of them. They are interesting. They're entertaining. Um, one of them is just the illustration of a wheel with spokes. And, and, you know, the idea is that, you know, the outer rim, the outer circumference of the wheel, from one point to another, they might seem kind of far away. But if you, if you kind of follow each one of those things into their core, you find that they all meet in the middle. The center is where they all unite. And so, you know, so what are all the different belief systems in the world, all these different things? You know, they might appear to be different, but follow their core teaching, and you'll find that really it's all, it's all okay. Or another illustration, it's a bit of a story of the elephant and the, and the blind man. See, there, there, there's this elephant... And there's this group of blind men. And they are asked to uh, feel this object. It's called an elephant. They've never seen one before. So they're, in their mind, there's no concept of what an elephant is. So they're introduced to this thing and said, tell us, what is an elephant? And so they go about feeling. And one feels the trunk and, uh, uh, and, and says, well, it's like, just a, it's like a really big snake. That's what an elephant's like. And another one goes around one of the legs and is like, no, it's, it's something more like a tree. And another one feels, the, you know, an ear and goes, oh, it's like a, it's, a, it's a giant palm branch. It's a, it's a big leaf, a big sort of leathery leaf. Another one feels the tail and says, no, an elephant's just kind of something like a rope. And so the moral of this little tale is... Now see, none of them is really wrong. They're just experiencing the elephant from different perspectives. And so it is with, with spiritual truth. You know, every, what, what people believe may appear to be all very different, but they're all really ultimately just describing perhaps different aspects of what is the one truth. And so they're none of them really wrong. Is that correct? In John 14, 6, we see the words of Jesus when he said, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. Absolutely exclusive. It's absolutely definitive. Truth, by definition, is exclusive because anything that is contrary to it cannot be correct. I mean, this is basic logic. I mean, let's step out of the world of, of reading the Bible and religion and stuff like that. It's basic rule of non-contradiction within the world of logic. I cannot say this is a pulpit or a podium. Call it a podium. Let's be non-spiritual, right? It's just a podium. This is a podium. This is not a podium. Can both be true? Can this be at the same time and in the same way a podium and not a podium? You know that it can't be. It's got to be one or the either. 
If you go stand out in the middle of that road and wait for a while as some of these trucks come through, you can feel it vibrate the building, right? If you stand out there in the middle of the road long enough, you will learn that in that space, it is either you or the truck, but it can't be both. So this is, here we have real truth, right? So if Jesus says, I am the way, exclusively, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, we have to accept that that is to the exclusion of all others. I asked a Buddhist who was tending to a, a, a Buddhist book bookshop at a great big Buddhist temple down south of here in the Wollongong area. And I said, so how do you handle the claim of Jesus? Because I know you accept, you know, theoretically accept Jesus as a great, as one of the great teachers and, and so on. So how do you handle this statement when he said plainly, I myself am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me? They didn't have an answer. They just got me out the door as fast as possible. It, doesn't, it just cannot work together with this idea of choosing any other way. Right? So God is exclusive. Peter understood this. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Now, here's, here's making that choice. This is, this is being willing to really honor God above all others because Peter has been beaten already before. He and John are standing before the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, and they are telling him on the firmest and strictest and most threatening of terms, you must stop preaching Jesus. You must stop telling people that he's come back to life. You must stop blaming us for his death or else. His response was, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You choose. He says, you, you tell me what I should do. Should I obey you as people or should I obey God? Because there is no other way. God's one provision is Jesus Christ. You're telling me to reject that. You're telling me you don't want me to share that with other people. People must approach God on his terms. His terms through Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. To be forgiven for all guilt, to be given for all sin, to be accepted as his own child, to be promised, guaranteed eternal life, to be given the Holy Spirit to aid the Christian life, the Christian walk in the meantime, that we might have fellowship with God and that we might have help for each day for its trials and struggles and challenges and temptations. God is a gracious God who's given us this great gift. He offers it to us to be accepted freely as a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot contribute to the cost. You can only accept it as a gift. So uh, just a couple of thoughts to, to wrap it up. First of all, again, God-ordained family and its roles for our good and we should obey. This was a priority for God in the Old Testament. It's a priority for God in the New Testament. We need to return to this. If we are God's people, if we want to honor God in the way that we live and the way that we represent him in the world today, we must honor our parents. We must live the family life according to the way God has described for us. And secondly, there is one true God who deserves worship. Everything else is a fake God or a fake system of faith. I know that's not an acceptable thing to many people for me to say today. It's not politically correct. I don't wish anybody ill, but I am absolutely convinced that when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father by me, he knew what he was talking about and he meant it and we have to accept or reject that. I accept it. And I challenge everyone who hears this message to do as well for your good. There's one true God who is faithful and loving and holy and gracious and ready to accept you. He has paid the price for your sin and your guilt through his own son, Jesus Christ, and he wants you to be part of his family. 
All you have to do is accept the invitation. So I hope that anyone who has not done that yet will do that today. Don't delay. There are no guarantees in this life. And you see in the news every day, it just takes a moment like that and what nobody expected happens and a life is ended. You don't know. I'm not trying to just play scare tactics. This is the reality. You don't know that you'll make it to the end of this day. There is no guarantee of it. I don't know that. I don't know that I'll make it to the end of this message. I can have a heart attack and drop right here. I've seen it. I saw a pastor drop in the pulpit and pass away. It can happen. So we must make things right with God immediately. Act now. Don't delay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed of yourself through your word, that you have been uh, so gracious, though you are this holy, entirely other, righteous, all-powerful God, yet you love us enough to, to reveal yourself to us through your word and to, uh, to, through your word, reveal to us what you desire for us and what you have planned for us and the provision you have made through, uh, for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and to offer this so freely to receive us so graciously. Father, we who have already become beneficiaries of your grace, we, we're reminded to thank you of what a great gift it is. None of us have come to you on our own merits. It has it's only been uh, through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the completeness, the perfection of his sacrifice. And so we are grateful, and, and we want to live as your children. We want to live more faithfully and more respectfully of you as our Heavenly Father. And and we know that one way we can do that, one way to apply that, uh, is to obey you when you tell us to live in a certain way within our families, uh, to honor our parents, to uh, to love and cherish one another, to love and respect, and and to uphold one another as, as you have instructed us in your word in Ephesians and in Colossians. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be increasingly more obedient in these ways that that we can enjoy the blessing of living life the best way according to your plan and that we can reflect your holiness and your goodness to the world around us, that others will see our good works and glorify you, our Father in heaven, that they might come to know you and have eternal life as well. Because it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, please, and we'll sing the song that we've kind of um, been practicing over the last month, pure and holy. It's just a good prayer to uh, get stuck in your mind. So let's stand and sing.